This morning, what we're going to do is we're jumping back into our study in the book of Exodus. We took a break last week, and so we're picking up where we left off. Last time, we were um, talking about God providing manna from heaven, and and this week, we, we see in a lot of ways a similar story as we pick back up in Exodus 17. Um, so if you'd like to follow along, um, the passage is in the bulletin, or it'll be on the screens behind me. Um, so I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray for our time together. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, at Rephidim, But there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? The people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? In a little while, they will stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then one passage from the New Testament as well. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Let me pray for us real quick. Father, thank you for the gift of this morning for a day that's set aside to worship you. Would you help us to move deeper into that rest this morning? Would you help us to set aside um, distractions from maybe earlier this week of things we were dealing with walking through, maybe things that we were walking through this morning, but would you help us, would you settle us, and would you reveal to us the areas of our life where we grumble and complain? Help us to see, know, and understand the goodness of you coming to rescue us. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So last week, uh, Gordon preached um, from the book of Luke, Luke chapter 24. Um, It was Easter, and so he focused in on the road to Emmaus. I think it's a a, a fun story to step back into. It's roughly a week after the resurrection, and so we're we're picking that up here. And what we saw on the road to um, Emmaus was two disciples, they're walking, they're discussing everything that happened And we're told that Jesus draws near to them. Um, And we're told, too, that they were prevented from recognizing who Jesus was. And so Jesus joins their conversation, and he asks them what they're talking about. 
and the disciples, they explain what had happened to Jesus of Nazareth. Yet, they're confused about everything that's going on. They're told that uh, women had gone to the tomb and the tomb was empty, uh, but they're like, still like, what has happened? Jesus is dead. He was the one we had placed our hope in. He was the one we were trusting. We thought he was the Savior. And then Jesus jumps in and he says this, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And as they sit down with their new friend, they, they eat a meal together, and we're told that Jesus breaks bread and gives them, um, and he gives them some of the bread, and suddenly they are aware of who Jesus is. They recognize him. And then we're told that he just disappears. It's kind of this just unique uh, encounter that they just had, and uh, they realize that what they were talking about, their Savior was right there in front of them. And I love the, the commentary that, that Luke gives uh, of what um, of their response with all the things that they could have been amazed at. What Luke twenty four thirty two says is, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? It's this moment where we see Jesus breaking down. Hey, here's what the Old Testament says would happen this is what happened. He's, he's helping them connect the dots and seeing that the Savior was right there in front of them. I've been reading this little book by Catherine Patterson, who um, she wrote The Bridge to Terabethia, and uh, the book I'm reading, uh, it's about reading and writing children's books. That's something I, I love. I just love children's stories, um, and she's so insightful. In one of the chapters, she's talking about words and the importance of words. And I love this quote because I think it gets at this burning heart that the disciples were feeling. She writes, there, she's talking about good books in this moment. And she says, there are countless others really good books, good or even great, because they make the right connections. They pull together for us a world that is falling apart. They are the words that integrate us, stretch us, judge us, comfort us, and heal us. They are the words that mirror the word of creation, bringing order out of chaos. I think that's the very thing that was happening with the disciples in this moment. Their world had just been thrown into chaos where they had placed their hope. They were questioning that very person who had led them all that time. But yet what we see is through him explaining the Old Testament to them, he's able to connect the dots. He's able to bring order back into their chaos. And I think that gives us this beautiful invitation to look at the book of Exodus. And here we come to a really unique passage that's pretty short, um, but it gets picked up several, several times all throughout Scripture. And specifically, Paul picks it up in the book of Corinthians. And so what I, what I want us to do this morning is kind of slow down, take a look at it, and see how it helps us to better understand the good news. To catch us up to where we've been, um, 
as we've been walking through the book of Exodus. We see that they've been brought out of slavery. Um, Pharaoh's army has uh, pursued them to bring them back into slavery or to kill them. Um, And there's a moment where it looks like the Israelites are trapped before the Red Sea. And it's there that we see these early stages of the Israelites kind of questioning and doubting Moses and his good leadership. They're questioning then, did you lead us out here to die just to get killed by Pharaoh's army? But what we see is God divides the Red Sea and the Israelites are able to walk on dry ground where there once was water. And once they get to the other side, you see Pharaoh's army is, they've pursued them, but yet they are struggling to cross. Their chariots are getting bogged down. And then what we're told is that the waters come crashing down on them and the Israelites are safe. I think oftentimes we we think that if God would just give us this miraculous sign, come down and talk to us, that then we would be more apt to believe. Like, God, if you would just do this one thing, if you would just show up in this unique way, then I would believe. I think one of the things the book of Exodus shows us is that all these miraculous things are happening, yet the Israelites continue to return to unbelief. They continue to doubt. Because we see in, in chapter 15, the Israelites, they're, they're so excited at what just happened, and they burst into song. They're rejoicing in what God has done, that God has rescued them. Yet just three days into their journey, they start to grumble to Moses about the water being bitter. And then roughly two weeks later, they grumble about their hunger, and they grumble about Moses and Aaron leading them into the, into the desert to die, wondering and thinking if they're going to die of hunger there. And that brings us to our passage this morning. This grumbling, even as God continues to meet their needs and their grumble, it intensifies, and their grumble turns into a demand. And picking up in, in Exodus So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. And then they say, why did you ever bring us from Egypt to kill us? Why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Do you see how it's intensified? And we get a picture of that intensification when we see Moses say, hey, God, he's kind of grumbling. He's like, look at this people you've given me. They aren't following me. They're about to stone me. So we see Moses, he's, he's scared for his life in this moment. And see, this grumbling that is described in the book of Exodus, it's also translated in some, um, in some Bibles as murmuring. Um, but ultimately what it is is it's complaining. And behind their grumbles, I I want us to think about that. What was causing them to grumble? What we see on the surface is their anger. But behind anger, there's always something else, another emotion that's driving that anger. I think in this moment, what we see is they were afraid. There was fear of what may happen to them if they don't get a drink of water. There was a longing to be back in the familiar enslavement they had experienced back in Egypt that they wanted to be rescued from. And there was a desire for control and things to be predictable and ultimately 
they were not trusting what God was going to, that God was going to provide for them, that he was going to show up again like he had before. So in their impatience, they turn to fear and a lack of trust. And they become angry, they complain, and they demand. Their plans are not lining up with God and what he has planned for them. So that's where they turn. They turn to demand. Larry Crabb provides, I think, helpful insight with this. He's a, um, a counselor that's pretty brilliant. He says, we have definite plans for achieving happiness, or at least for finding relief. Those plans are rooted in ways of thinking about life that are so inherently embedded in our makeup that we never think to question them. We tend to measure someone's love by their degree of cooperation with our plans. God's refusal to help us pursue our goals and his insistence that we yield our plans to his make him seem unconcerned about our happiness. See, what Crab is getting at in that moment is that when God's plans don't line up with ours, it can feel like he doesn't care about us. Um, and that, when we're in that moment, it leads us to grumbling and to complaining. So I want to ask you guys this question, what causes you to grumble, to murmur, to complain, to demand, to doubt? What makes you angry and causes you to question God and his goodness? For me, I know if I take the time to reflect and, and see why I'm grumbling, why I am grumpy, um, oftentimes uh, it's fear that's behind my grumpiness. And it oftentimes reveals what I'm, what I'm hoping in. I think with having a toddler, oftentimes it, it, it's control, and I'm fearful at times that he's not going to listen, that he's not, um, and that he's going to be an inconvenience at times. Um, but what I realize is when I'm operating in that place of anger and fear, uh, I tend to forget God and his promises, his goodness, Whenever I think of grumbling, it always takes me back to when I was a backpacking guide out in Colorado. Uh, during college, I worked at a camp um, out in um, the Rocky Mountains guiding backpacking trips. We would a lot of times take kids from Houston, Texas, which was like zero um, at sea level, and our base camp was at, at 9,000 uh, over 9,000 feet. And so just alone, them coming out to camp was... Uh, it would rock their world. Altitude would set in, and they would have headaches. They would be dehydrated. And so oftentimes, uh, as we would climb or say rain would roll in, what the guides and their leaders would receive was complaining from the kids. Um, and a lot of times it was always like the big, strong, tough guys that were the ones that complained and grumbled the most. But what I, I loved was we, we got to see them like we were their enemy at times out on the trail because we were making them push through to get to the next campsite, to get to a safe place. And all they could see in the moment was where they were at and that it was really uncomfortable and they wanted reprieve. They wanted rest. They wanted to be in shelter. They wanted to be back home in the comfort. Um, but the thing that I got to see when we would get back to base camp they would get showered, they would have a hot meal, 
And suddenly, we were the coolest people ever. They loved us. They thought we were so great for the adventure that we had just led them through. But I think that gives us this picture of kind of what we do when we are in this place of hardship. Um, Even thinking about my son, oftentimes when he's grumbling, um, it's because he's hungry. It's because he's tired. Um, And I think most of us with kids in this room probably are familiar with that grumbling. Um, But what happens when we are around grumbling? Oftentimes, I know I myself, I start to grumble because grumbling in many ways is contagious. And again, what when we take the time to kind of step back and evaluate, gosh, why am I doing that? It reveals our own hearts. And that's what we see happening in Scripture. Up until this point, we have, been, we have seen that God has been the one testing the Israelites. In 1525, it says, The Lord made a statute and ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. Then in Exodus 16, 4, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. I love when Scripture does this. It gives us direct commentary on that. In Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 4, it says, Remember that the Lord, your God, led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so, Deuteronomy is speaking towards the end of the 40 years and talking about God's faithfulness and why he did the testing. And so this testing, it's not like a pop quiz or a test that we're used to uh, receiving in school. What it, what it is, it's, it's a test to see where they're placing their hope. It's a test to see what they're relying on and trusting in. And through God testing his people, he was helping them to see that what they truly needed the deepest cravings of their heart could only be quieted, could only be quenched through communion with him, through looking to him, depending on him, and trusting in him. Yet as we look at Exodus 17, as they are thirsty, feeling as though they are dying, they take matters into their own hands, and we see that the Israelites, in their quarreling, arguing, complaining against Moses, they are ultimately testing the Lord. We see that they are the ones that are operating in this place of disbelief. Exodus 17, 7 says, he named the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And looking closely at the text, we see that more is going on than an angry mob making demands to Moses. It's more like a victimized party demanding for justice. They have been wrong, and they're demanding a trial. And that's the very thing they get. 
The Israelites, they are angry. They are questioning the Lord and his goodness. They feel like they have kept their end of the deal. They have followed Moses out into the wilderness. But yet, because of their lack of provision, God has failed to keep his end of the deal. So in that, we see this trial take place. But before I dive into explaining that, I think C.S. Lewis, in an essay that he wrote called God in the Docks, he provides some helpful insight here with, I think, what's going on. Um, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease. He is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. What it's saying there, it's some unfamiliar language maybe, but they're saying that we have placed God on trial. He's the one that we are examining. We're, we're the ones that get to look at God and, and see if he's good or not. And kind of if he fits into what we want him to fit into, if he's kind of lining up with our plans, then he's good. He goes off, not charged. But yet if he's on the stand and we don't agree, we charge him. We see him as the guilty one. And so I want to look at some of the specific words that are getting used here that help us to see that this is a trial. The word for complaint that is used here is also used elsewhere in Scripture to to describe covenant lawsuit. And the word for testing can also be understood as trial or, or ordeal. And so what God does in the midst of this, these accusations is God directs Moses with how this trial is going to go down. He tells Moses to pass before the people and take some of the elders with him. And in this, um, in this culture, the elders were seen as the ones that would be pulled aside and come in and help people in conflict and kind of judge what was going on, who was in the right and who was in the wrong. And then the Lord instructs Moses to take his staff with him, that same staff that struck the Nile River and turned it into blood, bringing judgment on the Egyptians, cutting them off from their life source. And the Lord tells Moses that he will stand before them on the rock of Horeb and tells Moses to strike that rock. Can you see the courtroom? The elders are lined up. Moses is in the middle, mediating everything, and God is in the stand. And Moses obeys the Lord. He takes the staff, and instead of judgment falling on the grumbling people or Moses, the strike from the staff that has brought judgment on the Egyptians, it falls where the Lord is standing. Psalm 78, I I thought it was unique that in this, we don't even hear what happens in this moment. It's just like we're to assume that water comes flowing from the rock because they quit complaining. But Psalm 78 gives us this this description of what does happen. It says, He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as abundant as the depths. He brought streams out of the stone and made water flow down like rivers. And so what what I picture there is this massive river that breaks through miraculously to quench the thirst of these thirsty people. 
And here what we see is the Lord's faithfulness to a very forgetful people. And he's like a loving father that enters in between two siblings arguing and he abundantly meets their need. And on the surface, it seems like this short story, these seven verses, um, it's just this cool story about God's faithfulness. And that is true, but I think it can be easy for us as readers just to kind of blow through this and, and not think much of it. But Scripture thinks much of this event. It gets picked up several times in Psalms and in the prophets. And whenever it gets mentioned, it's always to remind people of their lack of trust and how God is uh, faithful. And, and it's kind of used as a warning to say, hey, don't go into that place of testing again. I am faithful. I'm the one who will meet your need. And Paul, he picks up this passage as well as he's writing to the Corinthians. And he's warning them against idolatry. He's telling them, hey, d- don't give in to this. And he, he points back to the wilderness. And what he says is, in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drink from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Which leaves us here asking the question, okay, how was Christ the rock? How do we make that connection? What are you doing there, Paul? Like the people of Israel, we live in a wilderness, uh, in the wilderness of this broken and fallen world. It's tainted and distorted by sin. There's suffering, there's pain, there's injustice, there's sickness, and there's death. Each of us has experienced this on some level And maybe you have even been questioning God and his goodness because of the pain and suffering you have experienced or that you're experiencing and walking through right now. Um, And you're kind of asking the question like, okay, God, if you are the the creator of this world, if you are sovereign, how are you letting things like this happening? How can you allow there to be so much pain and so much suffering? And this is where I think it's crucial for us to see this courtroom scene that is presented to us in Exodus 17. And I want to help us connect the dots with what Paul is saying and even taking us back to that road to Emmaus of when we connect those dots, there's a fire that burns within us because I think it brings order into the chaos of our life, into the chaos of our suffering. And I think what's going on here, when the people say the Lord is not among us, or they're asking, is the Lord among us or not, um, what we see throughout the Old Testament as we continue to read through the book of Exodus, on through the prophets in the book of the Psalms, we see the thread of this promised Messiah that will come and make all things right. He is referred to, as Isaiah tells us, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we see this promise come to fruition in the New Testament. Jesus, the Son of God, he becomes man. He enters this broken and fallen world. 
He experiences hunger and thirst and brokenness. He is tempted and tested in the wilderness, yet he does not give in. He lives a perfect and sinless life. And like Moses, the, rel- the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they accused him and wanted to kill him. They put him on trial, and they sentenced him to death. The innocent son of God, is he's stripped, he's mocked, he's beaten, he's spit on, and he's murdered. And see, the rock was Christ, because like the rock on the cross, Christ was struck with divine judgment. And the reality is, is he did that so sinners like you and me could be healed and restored. I love what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, our complaining, our grumbling, crushed because of our inequities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the inequity of us all. You see, what it's saying there is he did that so that we could have peace. And the beauty and the reality that we see in this passage is the good news does not end there. The rock was also Christ because from Christ flows streams of living water. As Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, he says, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. See, Christ was present with God's people in the wilderness, and Christ is present with us today as we walk through the wilderness of this world. If we are in Christ, we have eternal security in him. We have hope in the trials and hardships that we may be walking through and facing right now or that we will face in the future. I want to say, if you're on the fence with trusting Jesus or if you're in this place of walking through some kind of trial, pain, suffering, I want to encourage you that he can be trusted. And it's in our trials where we see God meeting our greatest greatest need, our deepest need. And I think what, when we experience trials, what they ultimately reveal in us are these desires that we have. And I think each and every one of those desires points us to our need of him. One uh, great pastor um, from the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, has helped me to understand uh, times of wilderness, um, times of trial in my own life. He struggled with debilitating depression, Um, yet even in his most difficult trials, his faith seemed to increase, and he was able to communicate the gospel in these most uh, beautiful and attractive ways. And listen to what he writes, or what he said in one of his sermons. He says, no flowers were so lovely a blue as those which grow at the foot of the frozen glacier. No stars gleam so brightly as those which glisten in the polar sky. No water tastes so sweet 
is that which springs amid the desert sand, and no faith is so precious as that which lives and triumphs in adversity. Tried faith brings experience. You could not have believed your own weakness had you not been compelled to pass through the rivers, and you would never have known God's strength had you not been supported amid the water floods. Faith increases in solidity, assurance, and intensity the more it is exercised with tribulation. What Spurgeon is talking about there is he's saying, in these moments of trials, what I've experienced personally is God meets me in my deepest need. And what he's seen as a pastor of coming alongside people in their most broken moments, he's seen God show up in really powerful ways. And that's where we taste the sweetness of his grace and his goodness. And so I want to end by us looking at Psalm 95 that was our call to worship, where the psalmist directly takes us back to Meribah and and Massa, where these events took place. And he reminds us of God's faithfulness and goodness. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as one that as on that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. The beauty that we get to know is we, got to see, we get to see these promises fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. And so I think what it's inviting us into is to trust him amidst our trials. So let me, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this passage and where you help us to make sense of um, how you were at work in the book of Exodus um, so long ago and how that applies to us now. Would you help us to see how you meet um, the deepest cravings of our hearts as we walk through trials, as we walk through difficulty? Um, Would you become more lovely to us Would you help us to see the ways that you step into um, just the darkness and pain of our life? And would you become bigger and more grand? We pray this in your name. Amen.